This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm late. I'm late for a very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season now's the time to buy at fisher homes for a limited time only enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375 percent apr 6.139 percent apr with these exclusive lower rates you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home financing provided by victory mortgage llc nmls 461249 equal housing lender This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Some critics called The Wire the greatest television show of all time. This remaining silent shit ain't nothing like they make it out to be. The HBO series explored Baltimore's drug scene and the corruption of the city's social, governmental, and media institutions. How many years you figure we've been doing this same shit? Twenty, at least. Yeah. Fans of The Wire seemed most attached to its authentic characters, people like Lieutenant Cedric Daniels, the Greek who smuggled drugs and humans, middle schooler Dookie Weems, drug kingpin Prop Joe. State your name for the record. Omar Devon Little. And of course, Omar. And what is your occupation? Occupation? What exactly do you do for a living, Mr. Little? I rip and run. You? I rob drug dealers. When you ask David Simon, the show's creator and my guest today, which character he loved writing most, he invariably answers Baltimore. Baltimore looms large in Simon's life. He got his start as a reporter for the Baltimore Sun. Simon wrote Homicide, A Year on the Killing Streets, about his time spent with the Baltimore Police Homicide Unit. And then he created The Corner for HBO, a miniseries based on his book about the open-air drug market in West Baltimore. You might assume David Simon grew up in Baltimore in a family with a tradition of law enforcement. He didn't. He was raised in Washington, D.C., in a family where the tradition was words. My father was a a professional Jew, by which I mean he was the PR director for B'nai B'rith, which is like a Jewish service organization, and he did that for about 30 years. Argument was a way of, uh, of communicating. I mean, rhetoric was prized in my household. Simon's father had wanted to be a journalist. He'd studied it in college. But with a growing family, he opted for the security of public relations. His son, David, inherited his dad's passion for newsprint. You know, once he saw that I was interested in, in newspapers as a teenager, he was, like, throwing, like, Swope and Damon Runyon and, like, you know, watch what he does here. And, and, 
And then once I got involved with the Sun, he threw Mencken at me. And so I was reading old guys, you mm-hmm. know, who a kind of newspaper style that isn't even allowed anymore. You know, and so I'm not sure Mencken could get published. David Simon wrote for his high school paper in Bethesda, Maryland, and continued writing in college. I worked on the college paper at Maryland, and uh, I sort of wrote my way onto the Sun. Um, I was a stringer for a year and sort of paid 30, 40 bucks a story. And I had so many bylines that the unions have sort of had to formally complain and say, you know, you got to hire him if he's writing this much. I had like 100 bylines. And the Metro editor told the union quietly, look, when he graduates, we're going to hire him. So, uh, and they did. And they did. You know, I didn't have to do the three, four years in Roanoke or like a smaller market paper to get mm-hmm. to a major Metro Daily. I got lucky. And that's— the, Well, you know, were you writing those 100 bylines when you were at this school? What well, were you writing about? I was still trying to get out of—you know, by the time I finished editing the Diamondback, which was a, a, a broadsheet five days a week paper at Maryland— uh, I had maybe 65 credits. I failed out so many times. I was the editor, so like, I failed out two semesters in a row yeah. just for laughs. You were a professional newspaper man who was hiding in a college, I, the, basically. You know what? I tried <laughs> I to that say time. that to my father, but he, he <laughs> having signed, he's pissed away the uh, the, uh, the He still checks. burned about how you didn't play a Yeah, you know, I'm not sure he bought it, but um, I, I, I got it, and so I still had to get a degree even after I'd finished editing the paper. You know, I'd been, I, was, I was on the five-year-plus summer plan. But what did you write about? And while I was there, I became their stringer. I don't know that I was looking, you know, it wasn't like I had the world as my oyster and I could have chosen a a daily. As soon as I got hired at the Sun, it was like, okay, that's where I'm going, you know. But I I didn't know Baltimore at all. I mean, Baltimore was one of those places I drove through to go visit relatives in New York. And you'd like drive that 895, you know, the Harbor Tunnel and auto graveyards and, you know, rusting piers. And you'd think, you know, my God, you know, you take a wrong turn if you end up here, you know. And but you began at the Sun in 1980? Was it uh, no, no, later than that, uh, 83. 83. So in 83, you started the Sun, and you were developing a very deep understanding of Baltimore. Slowly. Baltimore. I'd say the first few years, I was just trying to figure out how to do reporting. Um, what did you write about in the beginning? Well, I, same thing I wrote about at the end. Uh, I, I never. The joke is I never got promoted. I was a police reporter. I started as a night police reporter, which was very reactive. You know, you come in at 4 p.m. and you leave at 2. You know, what you, you're, it's all what happened yesterday. Police said, police said, police said. Mm. And eventually I, I sort of graduated to covering crime as an issue or the drug policy stuff as issues. But I never really got out of the crime game. Did your attitude toward the police and policing evolve over the time that you were the reporter? Uh, yeah. I mean, I learned to respect good policing, and I still do. Um, and eventually I learned that um, I had to move away from the singular point of view of, of the cops because it's very easy when you're a reporter in the beginning to embrace who's giving you information. So if you're covering the courts, you know, you're listening to lawyers. And if you're covering the station house, the cops, you're going to – you know, it was much more accessible to go to the Western District and have their version of events than to go to the 1400 block of Carrollton and talk to the neighbors who, you know, didn't trust the Baltimore Sun to begin with. I mean it was a predominantly black city and – most of the crime was rooted in the in the black community. And so I'm a white guy who grew up in the suburbs. So I got almost no skill set when it comes to – but, you know, there's an awful lot you can accomplish by just coming back and showing you know, showing up as a little bit of the battle and then being willing to ask a stupid question. When do you finish writing for The Sun? You stop when? Uh, 95. And I took why? a buyout. Well, yeah, the paper was going in a bad direction. It was the beginning of what was happening in newspapers, but it was not— And you mentioned that there were limitations put on you in the work you were doing. What were those? What they valued in journalism, I had very little regard for, and what I valued uh, 
um, I wasn't unable to convey the importance of it to them. I mean, we were speaking different languages, the guys who came in uh, once we were bought up by the chains. And it wasn't that they wanted mediocre things. It was that they actually had deep ambitions, but they were sort of the prize culture ambitions. Five-part series, The Baltimore Sun Has Learned. It's better if it's unsourced. Even if the source would go on the record, it makes it sound like we did more work. I mean, there was like almost a formula. And I was much more interested in how the city actually works or doesn't work. And, and that stuff's complicated. And like if you're trying to slice off a five-part series or a three-part series of outrage in order to win a prize, you have to discard the stuff that is maybe going the other way or it makes the issue complicated. I mean, one of the editors at The Sun who became predominant when I, when I knew it was time to leave, he'd won, won a couple of Pulitzers in, in Philadelphia. And one of them was for – and I'm sure they were very good stories. But, but one of them was very literal. It was the, the canine unit of the police department. The dogs are biting too many people. They're biting more people than in other cities. And I'm sure the series has its merits. But not everything is – you know, the, the real issues facing American cities aren't if we can just get the dogs to stop by. You know, <laughs> it's like I was much more interested in why isn't the drug war the, working? The priority or, Yeah, yeah. Like, why, you know, why, why are we doing the same things over and over again and, and having less and less? What did you think was wrong with Baltimore? What, what do you think were Baltimore's biggest problems? Nothing that isn't wrong with most of a urban American policy at this point, which is – but I mean one of the more, more fundamental problems was they were committed to a national drug prohibition that is just incredibly destructive. No, if you stop in '95, you said is when you took the buyout from them, right? It was, and the then third you started, and, and then, yeah. and then, were you a television person? Were you a television no. watcher? You, so no, how I the was, hell did you end up? It was a mistake. Uh, it's really <laughs> been a hilarious mistake. One of my dear friends uh, who uh, died while we were working on Treme um, was David Mills, and we worked on the college paper together. And I remember being on the college paper, and this was the time of Hill Street Blues and and St. Elsewhere and those shows. And I could admire the craft of those shows and see that something sort of fresh was happening. But I was, you know, I was in my early 20s and I wasn't hanging around to watch. I could never get in front of the television set on the right night. So I caught a little of it here and there. But David, we'd be rolling the paper at 10 o'clock at night. And it's like, you know, we're just trying to get the pages out to get them printed. And David would like go, hold on, I got to go watch Hill Street. And he'd go into the office and sit down with a little black and white TV and watch it as if it mattered. And we'd tease him. It'd be like, you know. Some people like TV. Dave, the Ed Page isn't going to roll. God because, bless them. <laughs> right. God bless them. So I was not, I watched sports and I watched uh, reruns of Bilko and and uh, Honeymooners with my dad. You know, it was like a sharing experience. You know, sure. that's it. The, the newspapers had primacy in my house. The, 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 it sure. was just back when people got more than one paper. Right. We got the Star. A morning and an evening. Washington paper. Star, Washington Post, Times on Sundays. Um, so when you leave the Sun, what do you do? Well, I had a bunch of opportunities there. I mean. I was working on a second book. I'd written a book called Homicide mm-hmm. when I was a reporter. And uh, it was a nonfiction narrative of a year I spent in the homicide unit. Who was unit. your publisher? Uh, Houghton Mifflin. Once I said the police department in Baltimore was letting me into the homicide unit for a year, that access sort of guaranteed that I was going to get some kind of advance that I could live on while I researched the book. And so uh, there was a little bit of an auction, small, you know, uh, enough that I got enough to live on and uh, took a year's leave of absence from the paper, went into the unit, wrote the book, uh, came out in 91 – and Barry Levinson, the filmmaker from Baltimore, he bought it and he was looking to make a show at NBC. And, and they, so they made Homicide. And it was this weird stepchild because uh, I, I went back to The Sun. I didn't think much of it. You but, weren't involved? No. No, I mean I just sold him the book and, and – uh, My brother Daniel did that show. That's right. Yeah, yeah, of yeah. course. And we, had, we, we were going to get there eventually. But yeah, yeah. 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 
So that this, this, this stepchild from my book is existing, and, and I go back to being a reporter. Gail Mutrix offered me the chance to write the pilot, and I said, maybe wisely, maybe not. Wisely because I didn't know what the hell I would have been doing. I said, get somebody who knows what they're doing to do this. I'm, an, I'm a newspaperman. But maybe unwisely when I saw uh, the per-episode royalty that went yeah. to that guy. That, sure. you know? and, and I said, once you have some scripts together, send me – so I'll see the template. Maybe I'll try to write one and instead. Yeah, we wrote one late in first season and it was so dark and so depressing that NBC wouldn't make it. The, the show starts, starts running and, and I wrote this one script with David Mills. Like when, when they gave me the assignment and they said, yeah, take a script. Uh, I said, well, I don't know TV from Adam, but David loved this stuff. And so I call him up. He was at the um, Washington Post at the time. Uh, we'd gone on to different newspapers. And I said, how you been? How's it going? We're going to write a TV script. We've got about two weeks. And so we hold up and we, we turn this thing in. And about half of it was our stuff. It turned out to be an episode that uh, Robin Williams was in. Um, they cast Robin Williams in, in the sort of the lead guest part. And once they cast him, they had to, like, give him more scenes. Um, so... Uh, some of our stuff got tossed, but about half of our stuff, 50% of it, was probably our, our pages. So I thought we'd failed miserably. You know, if you're half rewritten on a newspaper, if, if half your story isn't your words, if the rewrite man had to come behind you for that much, you know, you screwed up. Hmm. So I, I was sort of ashamed and like, well, okay, I guess we didn't do what they wanted. But they came back and offered us another script. And so at some point, there's this buyout for my newspaper on the table. And the newspaper's going in a direction I don't admire. And they offered me a job in that window. So I wrote two scripts in the course of like a month, one for NYPD Blue and one for Homicide. And I, I admired both shows and, and, and they were both very fair offers. Tom Fontana said, I'll teach you how to do this and you're going to want to learn how to actually produce. And did he? Yes. He kept that promise with a vengeance. What did you learn from Fontana? Pretty much everything. Yeah, one I mean, of the most successful TV writers in yeah, the last and, 50 years. You know, and, and I mean, in the end... Tom was as good as his word in the sense of at first all you're doing is writing and you're just moving scenes and you're you know, filling in, uh, you know, but eventually set coverage and you know, protecting the writing when it's on set and in troubleshooting. Well, you want to make sure that you're getting the intention of the scene um, because merely because it's a script doesn't mean it's, it's, it's headed for anywhere good. You have to protect it while at the same time giving the actors and the director a chance to – make it their own as well. But you have to keep the core value of what the story is. And I've come to believe that, you know, if you have a good crew, if you have good actors, everybody's kind of a well-sharpened tool. And if they know their business, they're doing exactly what they're supposed to do. But somebody has to look out for, for story as a whole and protect story as a whole, particularly in an intricate drama that's... Everything. Some sets I've been on, the actors are better at keeping their eye on the story as a whole than the writers themselves. I've not found that, but that may be something that you and I uh, right. we're going to differ on to the end of time. Everybody has to settle for at at certain points for eighty five or ninety percent or even eighty percent of your intention as you go into the day's work. There comes that moment where you're fighting to get sixty percent, and then the, then there's trouble. Then the, it has to be resolved because that's not enough. But I mean, I think in some ways. You have to leave room for everybody to be creative, and and that it's that's a real delicate thing. So I learned that, and then, you know, somewhere at about a year and a half, uh, I was summoned to New York uh, to sit by the Avid and watch what Tom did when he cut, and that was another education. And you know, at a certain point, you get sent to casting. You know, there's a whole skill set of of show running that. And when did that end? When did you walk away from uh, Homicide? 
Uh, homicide ended in 99. So as, as homicide is winding down and you either sense that it's going to end or, or, or did right. it end abruptly or you kind of knew it was coming? They told well, you. I took the job with homicide thinking I'll do this while I, f- I, I was working on a very complicated uh, manuscript of of my second book, which was about a, drug, a year spent on the drug corner. It was a follow-up to homicide. The corner. Yeah, a drug corner in West Baltimore. So were you uh, – was The Wire something that you were cooking up while you were – developing and or shooting and or posting and or debuting The Corner? A lot of people think The Wire came in the wake of The Sopranos, but when we wrote The Wire scripts for the first season, we hadn't seen The Sopranos. We were we were writing in the absence of The Sopranos. We were writing in the shadow of Oz. Oz was the first time that HBO had ventured into this, hey, we'll put it on TV and you've never seen it before, on TV territory. So that was – when I saw the pilot of, of, of Oz, I went to Tom and said, you know, you can do a show about a drug corner. And for reasons that, you know, are, are elusive to me now, Tom and Barry were, were joined at the hip. And Barry didn't want to do uh, The Corner. Uh, he, you know, he didn't want to send it up for series. I think Tom wanted to, but, you know, it, it was – and I think to, to give Barry – Did that end up being a good thing for you? Yeah. I mean, it ended up – Tom set <laughs> up the meeting. less of a piece of it to Tom. <laughs> right. At the time, I was like, oh, now i got to walk into a room with it at HBO without and did Tom. You? Yeah. But and what Tom, happened? Tom set the meeting up. Okay. And Tom, what happened? Well, I got in the room, and, and they had already read the book, which was a miracle by L.A. standards. You know, it they wasn't a memo. business with you. Yeah, yeah. Two of the three people in the room had actually read the book. And I was trying to sell them the wire. Finally, Carrie Antholis, who was the head of miniseries at the time, said, we just want you to do the book. Can you just do the book as the book is as a mini? And I, I said, okay, you know, better than nothing. Uh, so I, I was in the miniseries business. The only caveat they had was, we happen to notice you're not black. And your co-writer, who's Ed Burns, former police detective uh, on the corner, uh, he's not black either. Can you get a black, you know, do, do you know any black? I Literally. Said, and I said, well, there's this. Can you th- get a black guy in here? Yeah, can we, uh-huh. can we make a marriage? What'd you do? What'd you do? Uh, What'd you do? Well, I said, I said, you know, I thought, they said, well, you know, I am. Um, I know this guy, Dave Bobby Mills. Bobby Curtis Hall came sprinting into the room <laughs> to co-produce with you. I had Dave Mills in my pocket. I mean, he, we'd been friends since college. So I said, I know this guy Mills. You know, right But literally they thought for the credibility of the series, you yeah. needed to have an African-American I don't voice. think they'll deny it to this day. Right. They, they were nervous about presenting depictions of African-Americans that were rooted in the, in the underclass. And probably very smartly so. Right. And, and I don't blame them. You know, t- television. You know. So who did you get again? Who was your? Dave Mills, the guy yeah. from college. He was, okay. uh, Dave Mills was black. So um, Dave Mills and I said, and, and I, I, I walked out of the HBO building, you know, in, into Century City. And I basically, like, I got on my cell phone and I said, Dave, what are you doing for the next year? Dave, I need a black guy. Get over yeah. here. And he said, what do you mean what am I doing? I think he was on uh, L.A. Law. He was, he was we're doing episodes for L.A. Law at the time. God, that's funny. And I said, well, you're writing a miniseries based on the corner. And he goes, I am? I said, yeah. And he goes, how did that come up? And I told him. I, you know, he was laughing his ass off. He said, all right, this, is, this will be good. So... I ended up doing that. And then How I thought, hours? Oh, go ahead, I'm sorry. it was six. It was six hours. And it did okay. I mean, nobody watched it. Who, you know, it's, it's the underclass and it's America. You know, it's not like, not like uh, people were dying for. Did you like it? I thought we did very well with it. It was very true to the book. It was very honest with the book, which I cared about. So both projects thus far are linked to books. Yeah. Right. And I'm thinking, now I'm going to go back and write another book, which, you know, believe me, if my book editor, God bless him, John Sterling, is listening right now, he's just, you know, he just spit out a couple of teeth. But um, I'm thinking I'm going back to books and I'm going to go to a newspaper and, and I'm, going to, I'm going back to journalism. You're going to go back, period. Yeah, I'm going back. And now the window is, you know, now that I finished the corner and homicide's over, 
It's a nice skill set to have learned, but I'm not looking for for I'm looking to go back. And then the but faithful why? words. I like I like reporting. I love reporting. I like I like actually the time spent even on a fictional story. The time spent in, in but research. But is there something about you? Not that you have to answer. That you like it a little less uh, glitzy. Were you getting kind of fatigued by that? I'm an East Coast guy, right. and and uh, I will tell a story on myself and George Pelcanos, one of the novelist writers, who, a good friend of mine. We're we're in L.A. for uh, I think we're going to. Uh, some meetings and, and, and maybe an awards there. I'm in L.A. usually six days a year for meetings. George wanted to go to the Ivy, so we got a reservation at the Ivy. And, of course, we, we were down on the sidewalk for 45 minutes, you know, waiting. And then the, you know, the, the beautiful hostess comes down and looks around and says, after they've taken every, you know, every other, you know, actor, yeah. and says, Pelican Party? Pelican Party? You know, I turned to George and I said, we don't belong here. Yeah. You know, they just sat Ruth Westheimer before us. Right. Let's go home. Yeah. I have very little patience for that stuff. Not because it sounds arrogant. It sounds like, oh, he's such a down to earth, you know, the, the, the Baltimore under his fingernails. And, you know. But you go out there and you realize it's not for everybody. No, it really is not. And, and listen, there's a lot to love about the entertainment industry. Especially when it goes well. And nobody's throwing the money back when it, you know, when the residual checks come to your mailbox, sure. you don't throw them out on the ground in disgust. Well, the note that says, no, thank you. Yeah, no, no one ever <laughs> says, no, thank you. But I was supposed to write towards argument. Like, my, the stuff was supposed to be about something. It, 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 was it, it in the corner? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was... It, for, and you were going to go write another book about? I think the next one was supposed to be, in my head... I wanted to do the working class. It was what, what we what we cannibalized for season two of The Wire. First, I had asked. Um, I'd made some quiet inquiries about going to Beth Steel, the, the steel plant, which was still sort of operating a skeleton shift um, in Baltimore, a very big steel plant, and, and also the GM factory about whether they'd let me work the line. You know, I, I can't help it. I, I'm from a different planet, which is journalism, and 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 what I'm really interested in, in even in making film, even as a filmmaker, is is the argument that can come as a result of the narrative. I certainly don't know you, but judging from your work, Homicide and The Wire and Treme, you seem like someone who comes from a, you know, a comfortable middle-class existence and, and, and an educated background. The plight of the poor is something that gnaws at you, correct? I'm interested in a story that has political import um, and and that can say something fresh and worthy of argument. I'm not sure I ever sort of saw it as being... Socialism. Yeah. Well, and yet I I would say my politics are to the left of the Democratic Party. I'm probably what in Europe would be called a Democratic Socialist. But having said that, I think I was very fair as a reporter. You know, some of poverty is about personal responsibility and some of it is not. Some of it is systemic and, and, and a result of societal forces that are profound. And you can't ignore either. And I think the reporting in the corner and and also some of the implications of The Wire. People I know who liked The Wire loved The Wire. Well, it would – but that that came very late in the run. And it came as a result of things that I don't think we anticipated, which are uh, sort of power watching through whole seasons at a time. You know, once on demand and DVD sets became – those things Binge did, viewing. Yeah, we were still locked into the, man, we hope they watch it on Sunday nights or in the re- rewatches when we first came on the air. All that other, all the other platforms didn't exist. So we didn't know that it would have a long tail. And at the time, it was really about begging 
to let us finish the narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, How many seasons of The Wire did you do? Uh, five. Five. And, How and many they, episodes? Uh, Sixty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What and, did you learn before? I mean, and even though the collaboration with Tom in particular and with Barry was a good one, now this is your house and this is your thing. The right. wire is you. Yeah. And what did you, what was your personal touch you wanted to put on? What were things you wanted to do that you weren't able to do before? I, I thought Homicide was an exceptionally good show. Really well acted and, you know, well written. It was written. a TV drama nonetheless. Right. Whereas most people agree that The Wire was something that was much more bristled with authenticity, the dialogue. Well, I mean, what The Wire had going for it was there was nobody to appease. There were no, you know, there was nobody looking over your shoulder. I remember when we pulled the, like, we had good numbers. We had okay numbers first season. We had even better numbers second season. And then third season, the numbers dove. That was the first season that NFL started programming Sunday Night Football. Oh, my God. And then Desperate Housewives was on another channel. Show. So we were, we, we, we were getting the crap kicked out of us. And I remember calling Carolyn thinking, man, they may cancel us. And I said, you know, what was the number last Sunday? And, and she read it back to me. And yeah. I, said, she said, I said, oh, man. And she goes, oh, come on. It's a cute little number. I don't want you thinking about numbers. That's astonishing. Well, that's astonishing. So, what did you want to do differently than you? The, 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 what were some things you thought? If uh, I, I had thought, my own show, I'd I do guess what? yeah, that was where we got in on this. And I think the one thing I wanted to do is I looked upon Homicide as being twenty-two. It was like a collection of short stories. Mm-hmm. You know, whenever I compare stuff to books, people think I'm saying, "Oh, The Wire is as good as Moby Dick," or whatever. And I'm never saying that. I'm always just using books as, you know, okay. The, Homicide was Dubliners. You know, it's all connected, <laughs> but it's it's James Joyce's Dubliners. These these delicately connected stories about a place and an ethos, and 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 you know, twenty two separate stories. And there's some storylines continue, but each story, you know, there's a fresh theme for each. It was short story writing, um, in in a television sense. And I really wanted to see what would happen if you sort of applied the logic of a novel, and so that like you like stuff that happens in the first couple chapters might stay relevant or, or have, have a, the old have a style of TV which is what we don't have now which is now everybody wants a one-off right why are these police procedurals like NCIS and everything so popular because you watch one episode right. and it's all right uh, oh listen yeah I was, I was I'm not sure that it doesn't present its own level of problems but I have to say you know, um, but it plays well into the binge viewing thing. Where if you're if you're going to connect everything like a novel, and I can sit down on an afternoon and I can watch right. three hours of your show. Although it plays, it plays well like in retrospect, you have to have a certain number of viewers get to the end and start talking about it and say you got to put them, you got to go get the box set, you got to go watch all these. Um, I look at these TV things as being a chance to have a discussion about something more than I wish these two characters would get together. I wish that you know. I wish that he wouldn't have gotten killed. You know, it, I understand that, that viewers experience it that way, and, and they're not wrong. But, man, if all you're doing is being entertaining, then I've sort of, you know, I don't know, I don't know that I can sort of like look sort of the ghost of my father in the eye at night and say, you know, that leaving newspapers was a, that I'm anything but an apostate. In fact, David Simon has become increasingly vocal in his opinions about our country's drug war. He said he hoped The Wire would move, quote, from the entertainment pages to the op-eds, unquote. Last year, Simon appeared in The House I Live In, Eugene Jarecki's documentary about drug policy in the U.S. We are the jailingest country on the planet, beyond Saudi Arabia, North Korea, or China. Nobody jails their population at the rate that we do. And yet, 
Drugs are purer than ever before. They're more available. There are younger and younger kids willing to sell them. It'd be one thing if it was draconian and it worked, but it's draconian and it doesn't work, and it just leads to more. Talk about Jarecki and how you met him. Well, one of the things that The Wire was clearly uh, intended as is a critique of the drug war and drug prohibition. So I spoke very bluntly about what I thought had gone wrong with the drug war. And at some point, you know, when people would call me and and they'd say the magic words, which is, you know, I'm doing a story or I'm doing a documentary or I'm doing, can I interview you about the drug war? I always say yes. And in fact, in all the public speaking I do, I always come back to one of my fundamental arguments, which is that if you're if you're an American citizen and you believe in any kind of democratic ideal, uh, you might want to seriously consider jury nullification. If you're picked on a jury for a nonviolent drug offense, of being one of those Americans who you know being you know refusing to put another American in jail over drug prohibition, you're not helping solve the problem, um, and you're leading to an incarcerative American you're feeding the problem. Yeah, yeah, you're feeding the problem. Since I don't think there's any political leadership that's going to get there in, in advance of actual popular sentiment, I think it's very much like, for example, gay rights. You know, I think by the time the, the politicians line up, change is already inevitable. Mm-hmm. And so I think the drug war is the same thing, and that's how prohibition uh, finally fell on its ass, which was that they couldn't find 12 Americans to put a 13th in jail for making bathtub gin. So I, I always take the gig, and I always argue for jury nullification. And it's happening in places like Baltimore. In a minute, David Simon and I reminisce about our worst Hollywood pitch meetings involving Abercrombie and Fitch models and the origins of the Chesapeake Bay. And I realized, once again, I'm in the wrong place. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian Cocktail Maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get Mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. Make Mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. I'm late. I'm late. Very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com. 
Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. This is Alec Baldwin. The city of Baltimore is still a character in David Simon's life. He and his wife, writer Laura Lippman, live there with their three-year-old daughter. He also has a 19-year-old son. But Baltimore no longer takes center stage in his work. Simon produced Generation Kill, an HBO series about the invasion of Iraq, and is working on the fourth and final season of Treme, also for HBO, a drama that follows a neighborhood in New Orleans as it struggles to rebuild after Hurricane Katrina. Simon says working on Treme made it even clearer to him what works and what doesn't in television. Two things are still the great currency, in, even in this golden age of television, sex and, and violence. If you have hot people hooking up, then you've got one, then you're spending one currency. Yeah. And if you have, then they're going to turn to the next page. Yeah, and if <laughs> and if you if you're blowing shit up and killing people, then you got something else going for you. Well, the wire um, was what it was about, and it was something we wanted to tell a story about. But clearly, it was it had the currency of being a gangster story underneath. Uh, you know, at least on the surface, that's what it was. It was a crime story, and the corner was that. And Generation Kill had Marines blowing shit up. You know, there have been very few television shows that, that embrace the idea of real human beings on a real human scale. It's really hard to do. Um, it's hard to keep people interested. I'm not saying Treme succeeded in any grand way because I think it's been a very quiet show. And, and it has uh, – I'm hoping it will stand for what it is and people will find it. But we were not interested in being hyperbolic with the show. You know, we weren't interested in tarting it up and we weren't interested in – the violence that there is in the show is actually corresponds to the, the, the dynamic of violence in the city of New Orleans and, and not more. It's really a show about the role of culture in bringing a city back and, and what it means to be live in a pluralistic society that is capable of creating pluralistic culture, which is what, what better form for it than American music, roots music, jazz, blues, whatever. You know, how many shows can you name that, that are really, you know, I mean, maybe like the first couple seasons of uh, Northern Exposure or – these shows that basically are, are 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 studies of place and time and character, and you know there there are people who the moment they they realize that you're not gonna that you know no vampire is gonna show up or or or, or, or nobody's gonna be fucking you know it's like waiter check please you know so um, I never want to do one more pitch than I have to do uh, in life they, they are is, uh, those meetings. Do you have another show stuff. up your sleeve? I mean, I'm 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 in this little cocoon of HBO, and I hope they take something that I'm interested in, and we'll see. Give some mean, ideas. Yeah, but uh, you know, it's not even worth talking about. I mean, you know, you know how many. Things. No, I don't want to. I don't want to pick your brains about. It. I'm just saying, do you have? No, some I'm just things saying you're... it's not worth talking. You know, until something gets a green light, it's just right. really not worth exactly. It. But but uh, I can tell you that um, I did do the round robin of like I have an idea that I really care about, and I went to like all the little meetings with the production uh, development companies and and. You know, I remember telling one the very delicate, true story of Baltimore that I really wanted to do as a small movie. 
Uh, and uh, I remember having one meeting after another. And the last last time I actually uttered anything about it was I was at this movie over in one of the lots and or this meeting. And uh, they listened really intently. And I'm like laying it out with the character. And then, then this happened. And I knew this guy. And when he died, and, you know, I'm, I'm bleeding out. And, you know, they, they listened patiently for 25 minutes. After which the guy says to me, have you ever thought about where the Chesapeake Bay came from? You're from Baltimore. And I said, the Chesapeake Bay? He said, yeah. You know where the Chesapeake Bay came from? I said, well, it's kind of this long estuary. I, I think it was sort of where they think there's probably a meteor strike. You know, it's that sort of – he goes, that's right. And, and I remember looking at him and going, and that's the story, a meteor strike? And he nodded firmly. And I left thinking – what an idiot. You know, I can't believe I just wasted, you know, half an hour in there. What a freaking moron. Cancel all the meetings. I'm just going home. Like the other studios all had meteor movies and this guy, and I, and I realized, once again, I'm in the wrong place. Yeah, people sitting at a crab shack saying, the meteor is coming. <laughs> They've got their bibs on. They've yeah. got their... But, but a very was, sentimental and romantic very, Yeah, very. Uh, they, I remember I was in a meeting once years ago. This is many years ago, the mid-90s, and I thought, oh, the movie business is such a drag. It's so painful and... I was really I had this crisis of faith, and I go to this meeting with some pretty big people at Warner Brothers Television, and I say to this guy, um, he says, "What do you want to do?" I said, "Well, I have an idea for a television show." I said, "I want to I want to refurbish the FBI, the old Quinn Martin. I want to do the FBI, and I want it to be, and I want to put together the most elite." team of actors I can think of, the greatest actors that I admire today. It's me and Andre Brower and Treat Williams. And I had this list of all these really tough guys that seemed like FBI, guys that could throw a punch and shoot a gun, and they just don't even move. And as a joke, as a complete joke, I said, or I'm like the Michael Conrad character in Hill Street Blues. I come up and do the, 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 the shape up in the morning, and it's me and like six Abercrombie and Fitch models are my staff. <laughs> <laughs> and I sit there and say, be careful out there. And they go out and have, like, crimes in, you know. And every in, episode in, in, ends yeah. with a beach volleyball. Every, every, every episode ends with, uh, uh, like, like Team America. You know I mean, like two <laughs> plastic-looking gorgeous people having sex. And the guy literally went, he goes, now that show I want to make. <laughs> I mean, I'm not kidding. With an ounce of irony, he goes, now that I want to make. He goes, that's a yeah. great idea. Yeah. Sign that one up. He said, let's do that, FBI. So, yeah. um, but one last thing. You have a child who's 19. What's he doing now? He's at college. He's What's he college? studying? Uh, he, he's a freshman, so I think he's sort you know. Has he got the bug? What bug? Show business. Oh, God, no. No. He's actually a musician. He plays uh, jazz piano at a very high he level. He hasn't even started yet, and he wants to go back. Yeah, that's right. He, he, <laughs> um, so far, that hasn't happened. Now, the, the young daughter is a performer now, already. what's that like for you? Because I'm in the same boat. i got a 17-and-a-half-year-old daughter right. and a baby coming. Right. How's fatherhood for you, Well, part two? Okay, let's be, two. let's be honest. You feel it when you have to get up off the floor. Yeah. It's easy to get down there and play with them yeah. when they're two years old. Yeah. But, you know, it's different than it was when I was in my 30s, yeah. and now I'm now in my early 50s. And when I get down on the floor... It's like, get the Derek to get me up. Because yeah. you feel it in the knees. Yeah, All sure. of a sudden, it's like, man. You, you, you don't realize you can actually lay there and watch Mary Poppins over and <laughs> over again. You're fine. <laughs> right. My wife uh, says that, and I think very, very aptly, that um, when when you're younger and you're parenting, you can go without sleep. You can be physically exhausted. You have, you have still stamina. still perform. Yeah, you work. Yeah, yeah. You have stamina you didn't know you have because <clears> you're young. When you're older... Hopefully, if things have gone a little bit right and you're an older parent, you've got enough money so that you can – there's there's somebody there to help you with six or five or four hours of childcare a day because, 
man, I, I definitely feel like I'm in my 50s. So, Well, as my friend Michael Lally, the poet, said to me, who had a son later in his life, he said, it's great. I said, you had a kid. You were like right around my age. He said, yes. I said, Was it, has it been everything you hoped it would be? He said, yes, it's great. It, it changed my life and reprioritized my life. I'm a really, I was so ready for fatherhood. I think I'm a good dad. I have a great relationship with my son. He said, there's only one thing I, 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 I remind people who are my age to keep in mind, and that is when your kid goes to college, make sure that they attend a university where the commencement is held at a wheelchair-accessible facility. <laughs> That's the only thing I do remember. Yeah, and I'm trying know, to keep that in mind. I, I, uh, I, I, I fear the future in some respects. But on the other hand, uh, you know, once, once you go across the threshold, yeah, I, you know, no giving it back, and I wouldn't. If I could. Yeah. Well, my last question for you is, you because to me, The Wire was about an authenticity, which is often missing from a, a television drama, which, you know, they, they've got their formula, they've got mm -hmm. their edicts yeah. and everything. They, they've got their recipe that works for them. But yours speaks to, makes me think, uh, you're ripe to make movies. Do you ever want to make movies? Well, the writer's not, you know, get the writer off the set. You know, it's uh, the reason they had that the writer's in charge in television, in drama anyway, is the need for continuity, the mm -hmm. need for character continuity. You know, you can't fire the son of a bitch because episode 11 follows from episode 10, you know. And so I, I've had a few bites of the apple and I've written some things that, you know, and, and I think, listen, it's also, I'm not saying that but I'm... But what if I'm, they gave you the script and, you know, we're in the age of the fully realized writer-director. Everywhere I turn around, they say, you know, Evan's going to be directing the script. See, I'm I don't like, want, oh, okay. I, I know what I'm not good at. And, and you don't want to direct. I, I see shot composition. I mean, I, I would do a very pedestrian job of directing. I understand how to turn the camera around. I understand, like, what you need to leave with in order to have coverage. But the really creative and elegant directors I've worked with, they have a skill set that I don't have. That's very interesting for you to say. And, and, and I, I feel the same way. I really respect it. When, when they, I when, didn't when, care when, enough. Right. When they, right. When they, when they, like, I understand when I'm watching a performance that isn't working because it's not getting the intention of the scene or because I don't believe in something, either the background or the actor. Or, and if something's not working, I know it's not working. But how to solve the problem sometimes... Um, you know, I, I can be diagnostic. I can't be prescriptive when it comes to a camera. I would watch some of the greatest cinematographers, and I would say truly that probably the most gratifying part of my film work was to be around these uh, highly gifted monastic yeah. men. I, I, well, the first I time I showed up, you know, like one minute I was a rewrite man and uh, crime reporter for the Baltimore Sun, and the next moment I was working for this show, Homicide, and, and my paychecks were coming from NBC, and I go to set for the first day, and... I'm looking around, and I don't even know what stupid question to ask. And it was like three weeks into going to set and seeing them do it that at some point I said, you know, what's, what's Boots over there? You know, the guy's name was Boots. I said, what, what's he doing turning that knob next to the camera? And uh, Henry Burmell actually, I remember, turned to me and said, he's focusing the camera. And I looked at him like, I said, you mean the guy who focuses the camera isn't the guy looking through the camera? How does that work? Like, yeah. you know, like, uh, uh, that can't possibly work. People are unprepared for how collaborative film is. Right, exactly. Is. And so respect the depth, you know, and I, and I do, yeah. which is to say I kind of want to have the story turn out. I don't want to put my name on something where the story, you know, you went in with a script you believed in and you came out with Drac. But I, at the same time, so I, I kind of don't want to relinquish control, 
but I have to acknowledge Features is very different from TV. To doing the television series, doing 30 Rock, where we shot, you know, 120-something episodes. We were there hour after hour after hour. My version of So Long As You Know was they'd say to me, do you mind if we move the camera? We're going to move the camera over here. So when you turn, we need you to lean on your left leg. And I would look at them. I mean, I, I did it a thousand times. I'd say, I really don't care what you do. <laughs> I'm going to be in this moment. I'm going to stand here and say this line this way. You find it. Oh, you want me to lean on my left leg? Great. That's fine. Otherwise, I I really don't care. I don't know how anybody hits a mark. I don't know how anybody hits a mark. I have to admit it. But, you know, I watched that show. I have to say, uh, I I am a fan of that show. My my, my wife turned me on to it years ago, and it's just the the reason that that show is so unique in terms of comedy is it it does something that you haven't seen since, like, the Howard Hawks comedies. and, And it's funny, but it's operating at a speed that I would call His Girl Friday speed. Yeah. The line's rapid fire. Don't you know, wait. Yeah. yeah, don't wait. Don't wait. Don't wait. It's like, you know, we're not waiting for a laugh. We, all, we all kind of huddled up at one point. I mean, it was unspoken, yeah. but we said, we really have to play this fast. Right. And, and, it's, if, and it's, it, if, we, if we slow down, it's dead. It's, it, it has the same level of, of rapid fire banter as, any, as the best sort of Cary Grant, Rosalind Russell type. You know, the speed at which— Tina's good. <laughs> well, it, it really works, and it's unique. Tina's you know? good. I mean, there's so much that is, is, is so much more careful and languid, and so is, to my taste, less funny. Yeah. You know, it's just, I like it to be fast. Well, I look forward to seeing what you do next. I can't wait. Well, we think that movie thing. I think you could make. Some yeah, you know. Movies. Listen, I may be back to you about that. Uh, I got a proposal uh, for you about that FBI oh, show. About the FBI show. Yeah, I got an idea. Tell your son to go to film school. Then well, the director's your son, and he wouldn't dare touch your script. Uh, believe me. That, <laughs> Am I wrong yeah, about that? You'd be out of the will in two years. <laughs> <Am> I, <okay. laughs> I mean, that, that's, a, that's a recipe for— At some point, I, I was working on—you know, my wife is a novelist, and um, at some point, George Pelicanos, a guy I work with routinely, we're looking at a project, and he says, you know, we really need a good, strong female writer. In the, well, I said, you know, why don't you ask Laura to, to come into the writer's room on this? And I said, you know— why don't you just call the lawyer now? You want you, I'm going to be in the writer's room. You know, George, you know how badly we treat each other. You know, can you imagine trying to do this with somebody, you know? And uh, he's been persistent. But, like, that, you know, there has to be something. There has to be some, you know, every child should go off and find their own joy. Yeah. And they should not be burdened by it. And, and uh, you know, he can, he can play Thelonious Monk. To death, and he's nineteen. I said that and, to my and daughter. I, I can't figure out how, how what how he's doing his quarter. My daughter's since. seventeen and a half, and, and and you try to explain this to them, and it's hard. I say to her, I say, you're going to turn around at my age, and you're going to realize that you postponed doing certain things to be happy. And I say to my daughter now, I said, you you don't postpone that journey or that consideration of what makes you happy. Right, because because I'm doing this, and it doesn't always make me happy when I'm doing it in this business. It's a job. Sometimes it does. You know, right. Well, does. the trick in this business is knowing when you're no longer. At least if you're if you're operating as a writer, this may not be, but I think it's probably true for an actor too. But when you're no longer doing work that is that the, the journey itself is interesting, and when you're doing work that is, you're saying either the same thing that you've already said before, or you're saying the same thing to no purpose like well okay this is what this is what they're paying me for today it's like that's the point at which you know it's time to do something else and it's like the one thing that david mills told me and he he died uh, you know the guy who i wrote my first script with came with me on treme he was a producer on treme and he 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 died uh, of, uh, of an aneurysm uh, before the show came out it was really, mm. you know, on set collapsed i mean mm. I, I miss him to this day but he, he told me something he said he goes the only reason that you that you're he, he he went out to L.A. full bore. 
and tried to get network shows, uh, development deals, and he went through the whole route. He said, the amazing thing is, and he told me, don't lose this, is you are okay if they come to you and say, you know, it's all been very nice, but nobody watches your shit, and, and we're, uh, we're going to go somewhere else, and, you know, we're done with you. And it's like, at no point, like, you know, if somebody has a hit with a courtroom show, everyone's running around trying to figure out how to do a courtroom show. If everyone has a medical show, he goes, you're the only guy in this freaking industry that basically is okay if they throw you off, if the plate spins and you fall off the plate. And I've always had that in the back of my pocket. It's like the wandering Jew of, you know, I got a bag packed. When, when there's no longer a place for what I'm trying to do, it's okay. It sounds like in one sense that a show business career – and I mean, although the shows were not, you know, you're not, uh, the, 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 these television shows haven't been these juggernauts, let's say, like uh, uh, Botchka or what have you. Not by any means. No, but, 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 no, but, but, but that aside, I mean, but I'm saying that doesn't matter. I mean, they, they've been very well regarded and very well respected people. Like I told you, people but every, who love yeah. The Wire, it's like hashish to them. I mean, they, they love <laughs> this thing. And but for you, you have this, it seems very healthy attitude because this was all an accident anyway. Right. I feel like I'm on borrowed time since the moment I got into this industry. This, this is not where you were sailing your ship. To begin and, with. and I, I feel, I feel the guilt of an apostate who has had a marvelous run, at, at, you know, since he left the religion. So I, I, I'm, it's okay if if HBO were to come to me, and say we're never making another hour with you, and you know, and you know, good luck and and God bless. I'd still cross the street to give him a hug if I saw him coming the other way three years later, and if I never worked. It's like this has been something that was totally unexpected. That it happened at a time where newspapers were collapsing all around me it was just fortuitous, you know, because there was a part of me that was really torn when this started happening. To this day, I miss reporting. So it's okay, whatever happens. There are a lot of people in this industry that, you know, staying on top at any cost. And, and they'll find themselves telling stories they don't actually care about because that's the story that somebody else wants. And that, to me, is like a, a journey into hell. Mm-hmm. So, and I can see how it happens. And, and let's face it, you know, they, there's a lot of money in this industry. So it can happen. But, man, the only thing healthy, he said, he said you got a lot of unhealthy shit in your head, Dave. But the, the one thing Mel said was, you know, is that you're okay if it ends. It's highly unlikely that end is coming anytime soon, but until David Simon creates his next series, fans will have to settle for rescreening episodes from their boxed sets. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com. 
Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more more info now.